following is an old school takeover of keep the kayfabe what up what up we have one of our classic go into the vault episodes of keep the kayfabe with yours truly steve grepschmidt and gary williams from ohio and i'd want to say before i introduce him that um gary sucks eggs which is oh. relevant to this episode come on Come on, Steve. No, you're an egg-sucking dog. Ah, oh, Steve, come on. You son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I am really, I'm, I'm excited that we're doing a little bit of a takeover, uh, and we're going to go a little old school, uh, and uh, I think it's going to be a great episode. I can't wait. It is because, um, you know, Gary and I, I, I wouldn't the word the right words aren't looking forward to this episode because of how why we're talking about it. But I mean, as all of you probably know by now, the legendary Terry Funk died. Uh, sadly, the same week as Bray Wyatt to talk about mm-hmm. two different ends of the uh, legend, you know, um, timeline. But anyway, Terry Funk, um, I think he was 79 when he passed away. Yeah. And. You know, he if if you heard the stories like over the years, it sounded like he was in some poor health. I know people like Mankind and um, Harry, uh, Mick Foley were, you know, checking in on him, looking after him. But my God, this guy, probably one of the most interesting careers of any professional wrestler that's ever lived. Certainly without hyperbole, being one of the all time greats and not just, you know, I mean, I'm not saying this to diminish anybody that i'm about to talk about but like sean michaels one of the greatest workers of all mm-hmm. time and care and you know on screen personas brian danielson we're watching the tail end of maybe the last year of his career all-time great can't have a bad match those guys are great what's funny about terry funk though is he's, you can't put him in a category with any of those guys mm-hmm. he's just so different i mean was he the greatest worker ever like in ring talent yeah was he the greatest on the microphone? He certainly was up there. Yeah. But it's just he checks all sorts of weird boxes all over the place in a career that went a ridiculously, you know, into his 70s. And he found ways to be relevant over and over again. He had, you yeah. know, kind of a really good traditional career for a long time. And when you think he's done, he comes back and he's a, he's a hardcore legend. He comes mm-hmm. back and he's, I mean, yeah, Hollywood he's, he's in. I mean, so many things this guy did. And that's why he's so interesting to talk about. And honestly... Um, one of, to me, one of the most memorable guys, and I still there's moments of his career we're going to talk about to me that are like, if you pardon the pun, Brandon in my brain, just because of how <laughs> iconic they were. Uh, that right, is, Gary? That is a great that is a great pun because uh, his use of the branding iron in the 1980 80 WWF were uh, were classic. Uh, but you're right, Steve, and this is a this is a great celebration of a guy who we, he probably should have died a lot earlier um, after <laughs> yeah. all the stuff he put his, his body through. So the fact that he made it to 79 gives Darby Allen maybe just a little bit, a little bit of hope. Exactly. Uh, because, I mean, this guy from exploding explosions to uh, 
sheet pans to garbage cans to tables to moon salts uh from the from the ring into the crowd uh i mean i if he if it could have happened this guy either authored it or did it uh during his career um but you know what's interesting is he didn't start that way Mm-mm. Not at all. Um, so we'll let's go. Let's go into the wayback machine just a little bit, and uh, let's get the the listeners up to speed a little bit. So Terry uh, Funk is a third generation uh, wrestler. So his father Dory Dory was born. This is Dory Senior, and then he has a brother Dory Junior, and then there's Terry. Uh, Dad was born in Hammond, Indiana in may of 1919 and the family uh, wasn't born on the double cross ranch they were not born on the double cross ranch but eventually migrated to there uh and so <laughs> uh but that that was the the kayfabe home of all the funks uh for quite a while uh throughout their careers what, what i think was really kind of cool about all three dory um terry and dory jr and dory senior is just that they're you know they really did have some lineage in um wrestling and in football and um and so uh dory senior was went to indiana state university was world war ii vet big into aau wrestling and so eventually he settles and gets um begins what's called western state sports and what's really interesting about western states is it it is not it's more southwestern uh, because it doesn't go past um, no, New Mexico. So it's really just West Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, and that panhandle of Oklahoma. Western states was a, a territory of the NWA. And even in the, the 80s, when they used to have the Western states championships, mm-hmm. I think if you and I remember, I think it was like Kendall Windham had it at yes. one point. Or D- Honest to God, if you were to say to me, Steve, I just top of your head, name one Western states heritage. That's the only one I could come yep. up with. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there were others. Uh, but I, I always thought it meant back then, I always thought it meant like, oh, California and uh, Nevada and all that. No, no, it, it it really had its home in in the southwestern portion of uh, Texas and uh, prominence in Amarillo. Um, so Dory, as was very common, very common, and this Vern Gagne was like this Fritz von Erich. Of course, we've we've talked about all these different big names before promoters and then um, and wrestlers their territories always started with themselves and their families. And a lot of that was out of necessity because a, they could always trust themselves that they would be there and b, you know, at the end of the day, wrestlers were going to come and go, but family was going to always stick around. And so, um, so Terry, uh, Terry's born. So uh, Terry's born, he's born in Hammond, Indiana, goes to West Texas state university, uh, which is now known as Texas A&M. And, I also know we've we've talked about this on a, a couple of past uh, episodes of the 1980s, um, but Western states or, or West Texas State is a huge, huge wrestling uh, school. Manny Fernandez, Tully, yeah. the Blan- Tully Blanchard, the, the Funks, um, Bruiser Brody. You, I mean, just the list goes on and on and on of these guys that went through that school that all kind of recruited each other uh, to be wrestlers. Um, so 
he followed his brother Dory and decided to get into wrestling, and um, and that was around 1965. So what we know about Terry Funk uh, is that he his career spanned started in 1965, and in essence, his last match is somewhere around as we'll talk later, his multiple last matches, um, as he's known for, was in 2015, meaning that he wrestled in six decades, uh, over 50 years of wrestling, which is a crazy. I think Jerry Lawler is probably coming up on that or more, right. but there aren't many others. Um, no. Not that, I don't know, that we'll ever see in our lifetime. I can't think um, of too many others. Like I, for some reason, Johnny Saint, I think the British wrestler, went in his 70s. Maybe, but, yeah. But, I mean, it's like it's like probably one hand. You can count mm-hmm. the notables that did that. Yeah. Well, he he was a big uh, singles wrestler, but one of the other things he's really known for is his ability to, to be a tag team wrestler. Um, so, Dory Jr., um, this is a cool little nugget of trivia. Uh, Dory Jr. was the NWA heavyweight champion uh, and was with Terry out of the Western States. Uh, Dory Jr. was the NWA champion for 1,500 days. So in essence, right around four and a half straight years. He's uh, only second to Luthez, who is the longest reigning uninterrupted champion so he's second to there in the nwa and to put this in context of modern day roman reigns as of this taping is somewhere around 1100 so he still got a year to go to even get to dory jr let alone some of the other guys that um he's chasing uh now Again, though, this is uninterrupted versus a long, you know, cumulative, title, yeah. Yeah, cumulative title reigns. But I think it's worth noting uh, that, you know, boy, Roman's still got a whole year to go before yeah. he even gets to that 1500. I mean, and that's just not common in wrestling anymore. I mean, no. Roman's is noteworthy mm-hmm. because when's the last reign that's been that long in wrestling? It's been a long time. So, yeah. It's just not something that, but then, I mean, okay, you know, he was second of all time, but back then they hold on to titles long, like, you know, yeah. Gagne, Bruno Sammartino, that was, they didn't flip these things around multiple times mm-hmm. in a year. Although even like we talked about in past episodes, sometimes they did and you didn't even hear about it. Like, well, that's know, just Harley it. race. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's just it. I mean, we, we probably don't, no one knows for sure if he ever did one of those flip jobs so that uh, they could uh pack a house but i do think it's pretty cool that's that's a long time and and, amazing yeah and at that time remember the nwa was um a territorial system with territories all over so you had the carolinas you had um even new york at that point was still in the territory system florida you had uh, the the continental kind of in the middle um you had mid-south you've got um you've got western states you've got central states which is kansas city awa so to have to be that respected to have the title in your territory for four and a half years that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool thing for dory jr and it says a lot about the funk family like the funk family was very respected and and you know and this again is you know a testament to terry as well but i mean terry was a 
really good worker and he was a great actual wrestler you know we we come to know what we see him from modern day as more of a stunt artist slash character slash you know comedy sidekick kind of thing but you know when he was in his prime in this in the 60s 70s and early 80s i mean he was he was really solid so much solid that he ended up winning the championship um so dory well dory himself uh, dropped the nwa title and then they started traveling mid-atlantic florida canada central states um and then in 73 they debuted for all japan pro wrestling and there was a real real connection with the funk family uh and japan japan at the time and continues to be uh, very strong. What what wrestling fans know as strong style and King's mm-hmm. World style was one of the territories and the areas that he went. And he they they really really took off um, in terms of their character development, but also just in terms of their wrestling. If there's um, there's going to be things that we'll come back to back and forth about Terry Funk, but one of the things Steve is realism. Like he was. He he was a re, he loved the realism of wrestling. In fact, I watched uh, a interview he did with Jim Cornette, and that was one of the things he said. He's like, "I love the realism of wrestling. I love he loved taking people on that emotional roller coaster, and he really did push the envelope as a dirty heel." Absolutely, and yeah. As we'll get into with some of the things, we, like some of these iconic moments of his. But man, he is just gold in that regard. Mm-hmm. So in 1967, Dory Sr. purchased the remaining uh, shares of Western States. Uh, there was a guy named Doc Sarpolis um, that he, Doc Sarpolis and, and Dory Sr. actually purchased purchased western states for seventy-five thousand dollars in 1955 from the founder dory denton and dory denton had founded western states sports in 1970 1946. so in 46 dory denton uh, founded western states 1955 he sells to doc sarplus and terry and dory funk senior for seventy-five thousand dollars. then dark sopolis uh, pa- uh, passes away and it goes to his wife and the remaining shares are purchased by Dory Sr. in 67. And in 73, Dory Sr. passes the torch to his sons, um, Dory Jr. and Perry. What's interesting to note is that during, you know, this this kind of run, just after this, um, he, he ends up winning the NWA world title in 1975, and he beats uh, Jack Briscoe. Um, hmm. The rumor, the rumor was that it was supposed to be dory again but he no showed the event terry showed up and they gave the title to terry uh, that could be kayfabe that could be a rumor it could be speculation but it's kind of a really it's kind of a fun it is fun funny too that let's just say he legit no showed and they punish him by giving it to his brother that's it's just funny there's got to be a great story there yeah well he he ends up losing to, to harley race but he yeah. had he had the nwa world championship for over a year um, and um, and I think that that's, you know, again, a great testament to who he was as a wrestler. Uh, in 1980, Dory and Terry 
decided that they were going to sell their portion of central states and kind of get out of the promoting business. So they sold the company to Blackjack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch in 1980 for $20,000, which is crazy cheap. Can you even imagine selling a whole territory or organization? I mean, sport teams are going for what billions of dollars now. And here you have, and you have a wrestling group from 1946 and they sold it for 20 grand. So it's kind of like 20 grand. Uh, Very interesting. So, but 1981 was the last of central states. Now, good bit of trivia. Vince McMahon actually had nothing to do with closing central states. He had everything to do with closing just about everybody else. Right. uh, As he was gobbling up the territories. Uh, But he had nothing to do with central states. They just legitimately ran out of money and they, they, in essence, as a territory, um, uh, were, were done. Uh, so mm. you had central states, you had Joe Blanchard, um, you had um, Houston Wrestling, and then you had the Von Erics, and uh, central states was no more. Uh, and it was around 1981 that Dory and Terry really started getting back on the territory system. And that's when we get to what I think is one of the very first memorable events of Funk's life that we'll chronicle on this podcast, which is his his joining Continental Wrestling in 1981 and his uh, his feud with Jerry Lawler. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I'm part of you know his beef with Lawler was now what I don't remember off the top of my head is if they had a match already, but he was just angry at. Lawler that um Lawler always had the support of the fans and that was like what helped got you know the yeah. force behind him and he kind of like like a classic heel he kind of positioned that as like an unfair advantage when yeah in sports since time began that's like you know a fair advantage <laughs> so, yeah but exactly. you know he twisted that in his brain that that was like you know he's nothing without that yeah and that's what oh. culminated in him challenging him to a uh an empty arena and it was in Memphis right I mean the, yes. the actual empty arena it was where they normally mm-hmm. um wrestle yeah. and um i think for, for the fans um that are listening i think um tony shivani and conrad thompson yeah. uh, after terry funks and bray wyatt's passing did uh, homage to both of them and one of the things they did was a watch along that both uh steve and i happened to watch uh, which we also had, we'd known about it, but we we watched it again together, uh, not together, but in this, but we talked about it, and that's what spurred on some of these memories, which were really oh, cool. For sure. But if any of the fans are interested in a really cool take on it, um, please watch Conrad and Shivani's What Happened When podcast because there's a really cool, uh, really cool recap of uh, and that watch along of this. Uh, really fascinating empty arena match, which really was, it is kind of funny when you, when you say that, like he, he was so ticked off at Lawler that he, then he, he's like, I'm going to wrestle you with no fans. Cause that's going to make all the difference. Right. Right. And uh, I mean, it's just, I, I'll tell you the first time the, the, the Conrad podcast you just mentioned, I actually listened to it on a run. So I wasn't watching the match the first time oh, and it's still like, Honest to God, I think I, I I watched a little bit or I listened to a little bit, and then I told you like after minutes, 
that it was some of the greatest wrestling I had, I had, you know, experienced. And it was, I mean, just listening to it, yeah. it was just to me gold. And, you know, people say that, you know, like, I don't think you and I aren't like the crotchety old wrestling fans that think everything oh. in the past was better. We love modern wrestling. Yeah. So it's not coming, you know, I'm not saying what I'm about to say because I think everything from the past is better and you should learn from it. But honest to God, I would say anybody needs to watch this and the match itself, the action is like secondary to the character work. And it's just Terry Funk and Lance Russell, who is the announcer, you know, it's, it's unsanctioned, Mm -hmm. but they still have an announcer there. Of course, just make this so good. And it's like, as far as I know, they were basically ad libbing too. And like Lance Russell is just right. Treating it like a great, sporting event because he's like well you know in the beginning he's kind of talking and he's like well if 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 they don't show to this then you're never going to hear this and he's just sort of talking and then of course they have you know they got security there and stuff but and then terry funk shows up and then he's like waiting for lawler who's a couple minutes late and honest to god terry is just going off and he's you know they're beeping him out and like lance russell's getting increasingly angry at him because right. he keeps swearing well i mean but it's remember, so great re- remember the part where lawler he lawler walks in so uh, again this is an empty arena match so it's supposed to be just kind of like a a, a brouhaha like it's yeah. supposed to be this like you show up as you are um, and pretty much terry funk was whatever Lawler shows up full character, fully in character. And Terry Funk's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, he's making fun of him because he showed up with his crown and, and all. I forget the word he used. Did he yeah. call him an idiot? Something but, like, like that. The yes. exact oh, my God. Time, was... Like, Conrad Thompson listening to it and me listening to it at the same time just busted all laughing yes. because he says it with such a venom. He's like, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. Great. yeah, he he was so I, you're right with well, the thing steve about it is you know it's interesting that you said because like i was on a run when i was listening to it at first and then i said to myself i've got to watch this so i ended up stopping it stopping that podcast finished my run on a different podcast and came back and started watching it because i wa- really wanted to see the action but yeah. but you're right like especially this first part my goodness like these guys had no script they were completely one one take not two takes or three takes one take like they were legitimately just going off and doing this and boy it was absolutely mind-blowing to me the way that they were um just how the depth by which they were telling this story yeah and then funk i mean like 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 i said you I'd never, you know, I, I've listened to matches with Lance Russell and I've heard Tony Schiavone say for mm-hmm. years that guy belongs in the Hall of Fame before he oh, does. Yeah. But this is like a master class and he is so good and his back and forth and his disgust for Terry. And then Terry's like getting so antsy. He's like, maybe I should just wrestle you. And like, yeah. <laughs> and so the banter is yes. just some of the all time best banter between the very stoic um gordon soley gorilla monsoon like kind of stately yeah. announcer and this unhinged heel it's just losing his mind it's so great it it is and you're right lance russell is a, a genius in terms of his storytelling and then and in this case in this empty arena match he especially is good because he's playing this very uh almost naive kind of 
like I what is really like what is this really happening kind of yeah just kind, kind of, of really kind of embarrassed not embarrassed but sort of like like this is ridiculous and then of, it yeah. gets going and yeah they start brawling they literally start brawling yeah. all over the arena and he is he's like something's gonna happen like you know it just gets bad it gets worse and worse and worse yeah and honest to god it's like and this is mike bait all of us have brought this up before this weird thing with terry funk how he was a heel he'd there'd be some way he would just kind of get to you and you'd like oh, feel yeah. bad for him so here he's just being this you know swearing and acting like a, and then but when things go bad and he like like in the in the in the big moment he gets uh what is it like a, a stick he's using well, and it accidentally was like it a chair or was it's it like a, yeah it was a broken bro off I, broken like, yeah. yeah and he like gets it in his eye he's going after lawler and lawler hits it back into his eye and then this like mournful like my eye oh, and then yeah. he's like crying out to lance russell don't leave me it's like oh my god it so, is like, it's he's on a, absolutely like, on a precious it's like it, oh my god yes. this poor guy like <laughs> and that's, it's amazing that's, isn't yeah, it just it like is. he goes from he is like like literally mocking jerry lawler and about to fight a um a lance russell and at the end he is whining and crying as if he don't leave me don't, yeah he, <laughs> don't leave me so he's calling an ambulance you know he, and, oh. and it is it's just such the, the the ability that these guys have you know you're right i i, I would never want to classify myself as an angry old uh curmudgeon -y wrestling fan but i will say that you know the art of storytelling is hard to come by these days because it's more of a spot fest wrestling kind of yeah you know, movements but this story you can watch it and if you don't get i i would i would argue that if the average if any fan listening goes and watches this match with a little bit of belief suspension right just suspend belief sure. and get engrossed in the story it's hard not to all of a sudden be like oh my god terry funk might be hurt like yeah the way they did it was so it's so good yeah so good so good no, and then I mean, and then he comes fantastic. right back doesn't he come right back in an interview and just basically lies and it and just oh, says, yeah yeah like that's never happened and you know well, that's like, and Tony Schiavone made a, a, an interesting good point too is like you know and, and kind of something he coaches modern wrestlers on if you're a true heel don't admit you got beat don't admit you yeah. got beat fair and square yeah this is an example of like just it is. Re reinvent history and that's yeah. Terry Funk did that brilliantly yeah he he acted as if that, that whatever we had just seen he was convinced that that just never happened and he put us it, it was bizarro but it was hilarious yeah and again yeah you're right I mean great another just great piece of heel work and I just think that he you know I don't know I mean that that matches is, is iconic because um right steve because the match spurred on a, a sister match um many years later yeah in fact um it was um wwe I, I, i'm trying to remember if they were wwe or f it doesn't matter but uh i think it was still wwf in uh 99 um the rock and mankind and, and for those of you um mick foley like you know 
friends as well as like you know he looked up to terry funk so mm -hmm. he they wanted he wanted to do an homage to that for this halftime heat thing they had wwf did where they did a match during you remember the time of the super bowl i um, watched it I yeah watched and it's, it yeah and but it's also funny i believe the rock didn't want to do it at first because he watched the other one and he's like it was just one of the worst matches yeah but you know that wasn't again that wasn't the point of it and i um yeah so they did their own homage to this this empty arena thing um what is that 10 no like, like 20 almost 20 years later yeah 18 and years it, it later was, yeah. it was legitimately aired on usa network yep and it was legitimately aired as soon as like at the very second the football game went into halftime they yep. aired that match and it was called something that's been done a couple of times but yeah this was the yeah. homage i know like nxt did that i don't remember anything about it other it was like good nxt back at, like mm -hmm. and it was adam cole was involved and i don't remember who he wrestled but they did the exact yeah. same thing but it's kind of a cool idea it's like okay we're not going to interrupt you from watching the super bowl that half the world's watching but halftime show yeah maybe if you're a wrestling fan we yeah. give you something else to watch it's kind of yeah well genius. i think it was in i think it was in this in that where um where uh, mankind cactus jack uh, mick foley tumbled from really high down the stairs like all the way to the yeah. floor i mean it was a crazy bump that this he did and so, yeah but you're right to some degree i mean the rock isn't wrong like he's not wrong that the wrestling on the match wasn't very good but i think rock probably missed the point of it which was right it was what we we're talking about i mean honestly yeah. like i like i would tell you guys like if you you know you're listening to this podcast you obviously have a respect enough to our opinion on things if you listen mm -hmm. to anything i say watch or just listen to the podcast like like i said like i listened to it which mm -hmm. kind of puts the match secondary and it was still brilliant and i think it that was. proves the point it really wasn't about what they did in the ring it was the mm -hmm. story yeah that whole story of you're only good because the fans and it's not yeah. fair because <laughs> not the fair. fans are behind you and i'm you know i want to get you when there's no one around and then when i get you when no one's around then i you know it's like I, I become this squealish, whiny, weaselly heel that then yeah. turns around and literally acts, lies right to the camera and says, this never happened. Yeah, and, it's you know, brilliant. Honestly, yeah. it's so good. It was really good. I, I was so happy that they did that that tribute. Yeah. Well, I think his run in, you know, Continental was really good. And, it, you know, it's a couple years later in the mid-80s when then um, – the WWF comes a calling, you know, remember the mid eighties Hogan was huge, huge, huge draws. And basically they rotated heels in, uh, on a semi regular basis. So they probably went with a program. I don't know. What do you think? Probably three to four months, maybe five months to some mm -hmm. degree with a heel building up a heel getting him to make it seem like Hogan was going to lose only for Hogan to overcome all the obstacles of the world. Yes, he um, did. And he did every time. Um, but Terry was brought in uh, with his brother, Dory. 85 was a pretty good period of time. So Saturday night's main event had really started kicking off. So they were doing, um, they were doing network television, WrestleMania two, they were in, um, and they had a huge feud with JYD. 
they were managed by Jimmy Hart. And that, you know, at the beginning when Steve was joking about the branding iron, uh, that's when mm-hmm. the branding iron gimmick really kind of came out. They would put paint on the branding iron. And after they would, they would, they, they, after they would beat somebody, they would put the branding iron on them and put the paint on. But I swear Gorilla Monsoon always tried to make it seem like they were actually branding the guy. Yeah. And it was like, even back then it was like, come on, man. Like, this yeah. Even as kids, we were like, come on. But but it, didn't, it, it they, did, didn't they call didn't they, uh, wasn't Dory like Hoss Funk or something? They so yeah they wouldn't call him Dory it. Funk they call him Hoss Funk and then they also um, so, so here's an interesting another um, mindless uh, wrestling information for your trivia nights so they introduced a character named Jimmy Jack Funk and Jimmy Jack Funk was not related at all to them. But they introduced him as as their brother, the third mm-hmm. funk. But Jimmy Jack was related. He was the brother of a, of a wrestler named Art Bar. Art Bar was famous in Mexican um, in Mexico for wrestling, uh, luchador. And Art Bar was the inventor of the spr- the frog splash. Yeah, I never would have guessed that before. Never. Uh before your stately notes here yeah so pretty kind of cool um pretty kind of cool connections to to people uh throughout that and so terry uh, th- there's lots of really good i i love um a couple really good there was a couple really good segments on saturday night's main event and one one i think they wrestled for almost 30 minutes which wow, back man. then yeah on network TV, on main event yeah um, was pretty good, uh, and they, they they intertwined. At this point, he was starting to move slowly, start to migrate away from technical wrestling to really um, more elaborate selling. And so he, you know, doing like flips and dives and things where he he would. Um, really sell for and that was something i really noticed about terry funk and it gets back to what you were saying before in 81 he sold with his voice and he you know he really put over lawler for all intents and purposes and in 85 his job was to event you know put over jyd and and hogan Mm-hmm. And as dastardly as they were with the uh, with the alleged branding iron, um, they let themselves. He really sold. He sold sold really well, and he was a great worker. And that's something that I really appreciated about his wrestling is because he he would come across. I mean, he would do this wild like swinging of his arms as if he was punching something, but he was delirious or had gotten, you know, concussed or something and he would fall and just the way that he, you know, but they always had that brand iron and they would use it whenever they could. But eventually the comedy would be where, you know, either Jimmy Hart would get it de-pantsed. So Jimmy Hart would get his pants pulled down. He'd have red underwear, like, brief underwear on and and the and either hogan or jyd would get him with the brand air which is unbelievable cheap cheap pop but great oh but it worked it worked like a million bucks worked like a million bucks back then so yeah and again it's the realism right where yeah you know he and his brother and jimmy jack were just really intense and they they would get you to want to hate their guts the way they would come out to the ring and they'd have a they'd have 
chewing tobacco in and they'd just be spitting at people and swearing at people and wanting to punch people in the crowd. I mean, just yep. so good at generating legitimate heat. And then, boy, Steve, just so many good encounters in the mid 80s um, yep. where Perry and his brother Dory uh, really just um, they really were were fun to watch. They were great characters at that time. Absolutely. Well, um, as all good, as you know, it's funny, right? Like as all good wrestlers in the mid eighties that wrestled Hogan, they eventually wear out their welcome and then they wear out, they end up in NWA again or exactly. So he made his way later. Back. Yep. And, um, and so this was right around. So in 19, so I, I guess we should back up just a little bit because one thing that happened in the late 70s, the late 70s, uh, 1978 in, in particular, um, Harry Funk starred in a, a motion picture with Sly Stallone called Paradise Alley. That's right. Yep. And the fascinating thing about that is, is that's really, to my knowledge, one of the first real like crossover kind of opportunities for him in terms of going into Hollywood. Um, he obviously played a wrestler, but uh, but for whatever it's worth. Uh, in Paradise Alley, he had a pretty prominent role, and that was in 1978. So after his run with the WWF, he then goes on to work in uh, a really famous movie with Patrick Swayze that comes out in 1989 called Roadhouse. So obviously, we've talked about Hogan's uh, Rocky run in 82-83, and remember that, you know, it, nothing's different than it is from then to today, but these wrestlers, they would tape this. So he disappeared from wrestling for a while yep. and then reemerged in 1989. And that's when we pick him back up again, coming to WCW in the, sh in the time being that he had been away, he was, he was doing the acting and getting prepared for this film um, roadhouse with Patrick Swayze that exactly. eventually does come out in 1989. So when he, when we, we when we had last left off then you know he was wrestling in wwf and now he's in the uh nwa, NWA. wcw and he's paired up with um one of our favorite managers of all time gary hart um and um and then he also starts doing uh commentary yep. uh, and that's kind of when when things really start to to bubble up um, because it's it's then Steve that um, we pick up what I would consider uh, I think we agree this next inflection match of his career which is his feud with Ric Flair absolutely yeah and I think um, where it kicks off a little bit is um, Flair I believe was wrestling Ricky Steamboat at a at an event for the world title flair was the champ and um this is one of those they did that more so back then than they do now but they had judges and mm -hmm. uh i think uh, wasn't yeah, it on the clash of champions and they had like yeah. all w or was so to our fans sadly that steve and i are going to date ourselves the tbs used to be wtbs yeah and so all the superstation had um syndication in their own shows so those 
many of their stars. Yeah, like Jason Hervey and Jason some of these Hervey. guys yeah, would exactly, show up for this. Exactly. Which is he'd go on to be a business partner of Eric Bischoff. But uh yeah, which so he is was, really fascinating yeah. when you think about it. that yeah. was a really interesting yeah. pairing. But uh Funk was a judge for this match, and then I believe Funk challenged Flair afterwards for the title, and Flair made the comment that uh that he's too Hollywood now, you know, because he got Roadhouse and that, and it's just funny, yeah. So he kind of he he refused the uh, to give him the t- the title match, and then um, Flair, yeah, because he pretty much said he was like, "You're no, you you can't. spend too much time in Hollywood, yeah." Mm-hmm. Instead of focusing on wrestling, and then um, Funk, you know, goes after him, and I, I think he gives him like a like a pile driver on a table outside a table. the ring, and it doesn't like, quite. You know, back then was break. really yeah, it does yeah. So it makes it even look worse. Um, it did, and I think Steve, the thing about that period of time was, he, you know, he was legitimately uh, Flair was Flair was just at this point he was really coming into his own. It, well, he had really come into his own. But I think he was ready to go through a transition because he had gone through these battles with Ricky Steamboat. He was, you know, he was a pretty much a heel for the vast majority of his career up to this point. But people were starting to be attracted to heels, which was something you and I, um, you and I actually were, uh, you know, back in the day. We well, always before liked, this liked, curve, yeah. Yeah, we always liked the bad guys. And there is something about that, right? And so, and I remember making many of my family very angry at me because oh, I my wouldn't dad cheer. Never, oh. He always cheered the good guys. Yeah. yeah. And so I think when you look back on this, this was a great opportunity. And and Funk, again, now you want to talk about masterful storytelling. I think we did an episode, we did an episode not too long ago about greatest heel turns. I think we did, um, yeah, for the uh, keep the cave hate podcast. So go back and listen to that great, uh, take, but this was a great heel turn. Like he legitimately was an announcer and a judge and he was building Ric Flair up and then he just snaps. I mean, he's legitimate. He was in a tuxedo, if I could recall. Yeah, and Flair had just finished the match, and he just snaps on him, and and tries to pile drive him through a table, and it, it just things go off the rails fast. Oh, for sure, and um, and I think it culminates. Oh, then Flair's out of action for a while because of this. Yes, and then it culminates in a match that I think has a fluke. Um, Flair beats him kind of by a fluke of uh, like I think it's a small package or reverses mm-hmm. a small package kind of thing, and then um, that gets um. Then um, Gary Hart sends the Muda like they get in there to, like along with yes. Funk and they beat up. Uh, so their Flair first, and what, yeah, their first match was at the Great American Bash. Great American Bash. Yeah. That was after the. So they had it was a pay per view previous there uh, a couple months earlier at Wrestle yep. War. So at Wrestle War, that's when the Flair Steamboat kind of like feud came to an end, and then. Uh, Terry Funk uh, with Luthez and Pat O'Connor were the judges. And that's when uh, he issued the challenge that got rejected and he pile drived. He, he tried to, he legitimately, he, it, but he legitimately hurt his neck um, because he ah, missed, he yeah. missed and the table wasn't a gig table. So he legitimately hurt his neck. So he actually was out of action. Legit out um, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 
So then they come back, it's 1989, and uh, still in 1989, a couple months later, and this was at the Great Amer- July's Great American Bash, and, you know, Flair played up the, the neck injury, um, and he was getting pile drivers and neck breakers and you name it, but um, then he reversed a pin attempt, you're right, and exactly, and scored the pinfall to retain the championship, and, it, you know, it basically then led to the 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 real nefarious actions of Gary Hart and Dirty Muda, Dick Slayer yeah. and Muda, um, which was really kind of cool. Yeah, I just loved this era. This was some great stuff. I think I was semi-new to NWA, WCW, because I was a WWF guy. But And honestly, I this is one of the feuds that really captured me because and and it might have well been the one because i don't remember a whole lot before this like in terms of i knew i was watching nwa wcw Mm -hmm. but this one and then the the i quit match that 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 comes out of it like just we talked about it in past episodes like i that's still one of those matches that still rents space in my head because it was so memorable well you know there were some you know, as the, as they were building to that I quit match, you know, there were some significant markers within here. Like, uh, for instance, because of this connection with Muda now, you, Sting, who had been feuding with Muda, now all of a sudden finds himself, you know, partnered with the Four Horsemen, which yep. is completely not normal. And he partnered with Ric Flair. And then they have this really bizarre kind of thing that occurred at clash of champions eight uh sting and flair battled muda and dick slater and terry funk you know after the match it was disqualification you know everything was going haywire so terry funk comes back and he attacks flair and legitimately puts him in his head and strangles him in a plastic bag, which was very Jesus. controversial. Yes, very controversial at the time. And so um, that, but you want to talk again? You know, Terry Funk for for whatever it's worth, like he it, it's realism to that guy. I mean, that mattered more than anything. Um, was just really taking the fans on this roller coaster of emotion and and. Boy, when you watch that back, it just looks so scary. Like, know, it, yeah. it legitimately looks scary because Flair's, you got this plastic bag, he's breathing. And I mean, it, uh, it, it makes you uncomfortable. It really made you uncomfortable. And it really gave him such an amazing heel uh, persona. And so um, eventually that then led to Halloween Havoc 89, which I always remember Halloween Havoc, Steve, is one of your favorite. I mean, you, I don't yeah, know. Is, it was fun. Do you, you loved Halloween Havoc, didn't you? You loved yeah, the concept. I did. And it's, I mean, it's funny because it turned into kind of the almost, Starcade was always Starcade, but it kind of, certainly as you get into the NWO era, it almost became one of the best mm-hmm. pay-per-views for WCW year after yeah. year. I mean, Savage, uh, DDP, some of these great feuds happened there. And um, yeah, no, it was just, it was a cool concept. I like that they kind of came up with something WWE didn't come up with. Yeah. And when I think, one of the things I, I loved about Halloween Havoc too, or just some of those pay-per-views back in back in that those days was I I just re- I remember going over to your house and watching them with your dad and yeah you know your dad uh, 
thankfully is still alive. Mine, obviously, and we've talked before, has passed away. And, you know, uh, my dad admittedly was not nearly, I mean, he was a jokester when it came to wrestling. He loved mimicking George the Animal Steel. Yeah. And he, uh, and, and, he was very but he never really watched it no per se. no my dad, dad even dad, to this day mean gene loves his 78 wrestling. and he were going to be and uh he still watches wwf aew whatever is on tv week to week he'll watch all of the shows still cheers for the good guys uh yes but you know there are guys that even they admitted over time entertained him that were bad guys so uh i like <laughs> Who are that. some of those well, like um, Flair. I mean, Flair's a cl- classic example. Oh, when he was in his prime and like the horse yeah. cheated all the time, my dad would get legit angry. But really? then as time goes on, it's kind of like, the oh, that was pretty funny. Or like even guys like nowadays, like MJF, it's not that he likes him per se, but he, he cracks him up like because yeah, he's just yeah, too yeah. entertaining not to. So um, Gosh, I or, 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 or Roman Reigns, I think, he, you know, he's OK with even though he's been a heel for a long time now. So it's softened a little. He still likes the good guys. But uh, Steve, I, I, I vividly recall as we were growing up as kids, we, we'd always want to fake wrestle. And yes. you would always like get up you know get close in your dad and all of a sudden next thing you know yeah i'd like taunt him and then he yeah yeah fake hit me and yeah. then yeah, oh, God. like a million are, bucks yeah i just talk trash you know the kind of thing that wrestling can bring out like yeah. fake talking trash to your own father and then yeah. he, he fake clobbers you it's great mm, that's so awesome well so Class of Champions 8, then the, the plastic bag incident leads them down this road where they battle in in, uh, in the Thunderdome match. Oh, God. Which, yeah, this is hilarious. It's a blatant okay, so, ripoff of Mad Max. Yes. Like, come on, man. Like, but, but, of course, you know, it's all good. So it's Funk and Muda against Flair and Sting. And... Bruno San Martino, ironically, is the Goes guest the other, yeah. yeah. And so uh, this Flarence thing ended up winning because Gary Hart accidentally drops the towel, which signaled, you know, that they quit, but it really wasn't. It was kind of just a, a, a wonky ending, but yeah. it was just another way for them to just ed- keep the fire stoked for Flair and uh, for Funk. And then it finally reaches conclusion. They did this TV special Clash of Champions uh, in November of 89, where they did this I, I quit match um, that where the loser had to retire. And it was, it, it really was a great match. I mean, oh. I, it's hard not to watch it, you know, it, again, ironically, you know, so for its time, this was, this was, I, I don't think we'd seen one of these before. Not like that. It was just, no, it was just, it was like, again, bordering on uncomfortable at times because mm-hmm. of its core, you know, quote unquote realism. And just, um, yeah, like I said, this match has stuck out in my life as like, uh, I just remember it. And again, we go back to that common theme with Terry Funk where he's this a hole villain, but yeah. as he's getting, you know, and they had this like, and again, WWF and others would do this afterwards, but the, they'd have the microphone there and they're, they're constantly oh, asking yeah. him and Terry Funk just keep on. No, no, no. And, but, uh, and, but then you, it you gives the microphone. Like, no, no. Yeah. No. And then, but, but also because the microphone is there, he's wailing in pain. And yeah. it's, it, it's that same moment as that other, that, that, that 
Magnum empty, TA Tully em- Blanchard. Well, and and also the empty arena where yeah. he turns a like this is this is and I brought this up before. I was sitting there cheering for Ric Flair, but by the end of it, I felt horrible for Terry. Fo- like yeah. he got me because he was doing that mournful whining, like he did, and he's like, "Oh God!" And then finally, finally, he 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 says, "I quit." And at the, I was like almost emotional, like I felt bad for him because I, I don't know how he did that, but he was just he could go from being insane to just like just overplaying the yeah. the poor me, and you'd fall for it. Like that's this that's every the time. charisma of this man. Yeah, he had great charisma. You're right. I think that's a great way of describing it. And this match um, is another just absolute. I mean, if you're a wrestling fan, it's fun. I actually did this uh, not too long ago. I uh, went back on Peacock and I just, you know, when I had moments, I would just start watching the episodes in a row. So I started watching all the pay-per-views in a row, which led to the Clash of Champions and it, this was great story. Like there was lots of really oh, good sure. emotion. A, you want to talk about yeah. slow build, right? Like I, I'm sure there's people who are still, you know, wondering about MJF and Adam Cole, right? Oh, like, for sure. What's really going to happen? But you know, these, that's this was built over a, almost a whole year. I mean, it was a whole year program that they had put together. And of course, just like MJF and Cole, you've got intertwined tag team matches. You've got all kinds yep. of, you know, you've got injury, you've got suspense. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the bloodline storyline has been very similar to this. And that's been, uh, I got to say, one of the better storylines. But the, the the original artists of wrestling, like the Funks and the Flares and the Hogans, even, I, you got to give him credit for it. Yeah. Um, Bobby Heenan, it was, they were masterful storytellers of getting you to want to tune in for the next thing, right? The next Absolutely. best thing. Yeah. And, and patient, uh, you know, nowadays you don't see a lot of long-term storytelling, but this is proof and the examples you gave from modern times of if you really put the time, like when they really put their all into it, it can yeah. work with modern audiences. Just yeah, like it, it did then, it does now if it's the right people. Yeah, you're you're... I, I love the way you you just said that because I do think that that hits it hits the nail on the head with you do have to have the right people and speaking of right people um this is about now that uh funk is leaving he he leaves for Japan in 1990 and this is when he gets united with Cactus Jack and they yeah. go on quite a uh, masterful run in Japan with a lot of barbed wire and fireworks and oh my gosh craziness yeah this is the new era of this is the new era right and he has this amazing resurgence that leads to the 1997 ecw championship where you know he he basically you know gets on this kick where he now goes into this hardcore bit but you know it's so weird steve because you think about all all that is really wrapped up in the hardcore right and i'm not a wrestler so i'm a i'm a mark i'm 100 mark and i'm not in any way shape or form going to pretend like i know how anything feels in the ring right but i would say as crazy as these bumps and spots are in hardcore matches they're not physically they're physically taxing in a different way right like they're not 
he's not leaping around I mean, well to some degree he was but i yeah. mean like this is just a different style and and he completely they they created this he and cactus jack really were the authors of creating this resurgence from what abdul the butcher and bruiser brody and the sheik had all done back in the day and they created this new form of of just gar what people would call garbage wrestling but it's really not garbage but no, they literally use garbage elevated. cans yeah it's not yeah. like nick what's that gauge guy nowadays yeah that's garbage this was storytelling i mean violent not always my thing but there was artistry to it mm -hmm. and so um i think that you know this really brings um a lot that brings a lot out of his character and he you know starts to go on you know just an amazing kind of run and then yeah really brings a, a lot of credibility to ecw and remember at the time paul Heyman and ecw was just a fledgling independent promotion trying to survive on the east coast yeah and you get a legend in like this that. grassroots you know kind of AEW kind of feel to it where all of a sudden it just started to blossom and bloom and yep. um and he by being the ecw champion i mean terry funk gave a lot of credibility to that wrestling group would you yeah. agree well 100 percent. i mean i didn't watch ecw uh not like our compete well actually charlie i think was the main one that watched it but mm. uh i do remember this period because that was like and i think to your point i didn't watch ecw i kind of was like oh what's the deal with that but when yeah. terry funk wins their title you're like oh wow that's pretty that's yeah. kind of a big deal yeah yeah i would totally totally agree with you like i think that did catch a lot of eyes and then you know and so you know it's interesting because um you know as he as he ends his career and goes, he ends it um, at least at the, the, from what I could gather, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different um, <laughs> alleged retirement matches yep. that he was on. Um, and he it's one of the things he's known for, which is um, these retirement matches and uh, this whole idea of um, 1983, he had his first retirement match. Then the I quit match, he was supposed to retire, but then he comes back in 1997. Bret Hart. Uh, faces Bret Hart. Yeah. Uh, then Sabu wins the title. Uh, you know, and then he, um, 2005, he has a last match with Dory. Uh, 2011, he and Tommy Dreamer had a last match, but then he faced Jerry Lawler in 2015. Oh, 2015, like match. yeah, 20, 30, 20 some years after their their match, their yeah, their non match, their non match, they they come back together, and so, um, but you know, a couple things during this period of time, one. Um, this is when the Funking Conservatory gets created, 1991, yep. and the Funking Dojo, 1999. That wrestling school is created, and to this day, Dory is Dory, his brother, is still training wrestlers. And he's which, the older brother, right? Yeah, he's the older one, which is pretty. Uh, well, I guess he. It's not surprising he lived longer because he didn't do he didn't half the quite stuff. do the hard yeah. core. Yeah. Now, the Funking Dojo was a developmental for WWF at one point. Now it's more just independent. Um, but um, but yeah, they were giving back to wrestling. Um, their, their group, 2001, was formed Bang Pro Wrestling. That was the, that's the group that um, comes out of the dojo. And that, and that is their wrestling um, group so that they can then perform and do uh, 
do interviews and um and really you know work their craft and so um Harry Funk comes back to WWF, you know, and he does win a championship um, in the WWF with Mick Foley. And he has the moniker of Chainsaw Charlie. That's right. Um, and so it's pretty cool. And one of the other stories, Steve, I heard about uh, Terry Funk through all of this was uh, in that iconic um, Hell in the Cell match um with Mick Foley and um with Undertaker Undertaker where Mick Foley was tossed off the top of the cage one of the coolest things I heard was you know Terry Funk was one of the first people from the back that ran into the ring and as they were trying to figure out because this you know and I think it would be a cool if you know you you anyone that's ever done deep dives into that iconic match I mean it's there's so much that went on in there, but a lot of what Mick Foley did, he didn't, he didn't necessarily follow a script and uh, he and the undertaker, you know, undertaker had, had a busted up ankle, a broken ankle. And so there was just a lot of stuff going on, but there were things that happened where, you know, that was not part of the script and, but it just kept building and building. And then after he gets back and then he gets, so he gets back. Right. And, and he's after, fully drops to the floor from the top of the cage they take him to the back on the stretcher then he comes back he climbs back up the cage and that's when the undertaker throws him through the cage which again was not part of the act um funk goes in there and tries to like protect him on a get over the top of him but all the while he's talking you know they're obviously from a, a wrestling standpoint they're trying to communicate about what the heck is going to go on and one of the coolest stories i heard was that in order to bide fully some time because fully was pretty beat up at that point um concussion tooth coming through his nose all kinds of stuff right one of the things terry funk did was he went after the undertaker and basically got the undertaker to you know give him a choke slam so that yeah just to save some time so he could save some time and allowed um and it just kind of shows you you know that right there that story right there that's and, inventive and yes and and more importantly it just shows you who he is as a person yeah. i mean a great heel is not about himself in exactly. fact very few heels ever get over as a baby face like a really good heel yeah. and and he always no matter how dastardly he did i mean part of the reason why he had all these retirement matches was because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight or nine times in his career, he put over somebody. Yeah. And that was like, the ultimate story of that was what the, I, it wasn't like he wanted to write out or you know, yeah. like, oh, look at me and my no, it's like Bret Hart, you name it. He did more for that person than himself yeah. in going out. Yeah. And and it's I just think I just think it was really kind of just he's a he's a great character he's a great character he's definitely yeah. somebody that obviously these last couple of years but you know I, i'd even say a year or so ago i heard him on um i heard him on busted open or on a podcast and i, I remember you know he still seemed really with it and he and he's, yeah. he just had great stories and was just such a genuinely you know love wrestling kind of guy and and even though exactly. he made you cringe he really wasn't cringe worthy exactly that's a well well said and um yeah honestly 
one of my all-time favorites as so many others in wrestling for all the reasons you said and um yeah it's just what a crazy family too it's like we could do a whole episode on his brother dory and yet yeah um he you know just really just because of that that just personality and the it just everything he did 70 or 60 how many years you know how many decades in wrestling it's just there's not too many people that can have the resume like him. So that's why they nope. made the big deal out of it that they did when he passed away because there's so many guys past and present that owe their careers to him. Yeah. Because he was, inspira- you know, inspirational. Well, I hope that in the Double Cross Ranch of the Sky that Terry yes. Funk is, uh, is talking smack to somebody, only t- to the Angels, only to get caught in a in a figure four leg lock and uh and get out of it so uh well those angels up there in heaven they're egg sucking dogs you egg sucking dog (laughs) uh so many people do such such good impressions of terry funk and and they are lots of them yeah yeah. those guys do a great job but um but yeah this was great steve thanks for absolutely uh, yeah thanks for uh for for the idea for for collaborating on this because i think it was really cool I, I, if I'm, if I'm listening to this, you know, a couple things I just would say is go back and, you know, I really urge you to look at that empty arena match. I think you really would enjoy it. And then the other thing is I, I, you know, I, I would watch the 1989 series of, of events from WCW because they were some pretty classic wrestling going on from the end of the 88 ish with the flare steamboat. And then into 89, that whole year, um, was really filled with really great storytelling. Um, so what are, what are the things you, you're going to take away from this, Steve? Well, um, I was thinking, you know, we don't, we don't usually talk like this here on these takeovers, but um, when I think of Terry Funk, I mean, if I'm going to give advice to people on, like, any one of you listening, sorry, you're never going to be a Terry Funk in life. Just accept the fact. But if you want to, like, try to you know, try, I think... Um, you basically gotta stay humble, stay hungry, and stay hard. Because Terry did. He did. Triple H. Triple H. Woo!